welcome, 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 welcome. I'm still in that intro from another podcast. This is I Love You Man, the mental health podcast. Your host, Nate and Chris. A little lagging there, bud. I, I'm not lagging over here. I'm just kidding. So we just got done with our uh, guests. We haven't released an episode. I think it's been about two weeks. We've been slacking. Yeah, we're gonna stop that shit. We're we have a bunch lined up. So. Oh man, we got the rest of 2021 filled up, and man, we got some surprises. We're gonna finish season one the last week of December, and then we're gonna hit hard and heavy on 2022 with season two. Hard and heavy. So if you're a full time listener, we appreciate it. If you're a new listener, we appreciate it. 2022, don't give up us. Don't give up on us now. Of course, you know, we got a, some pretty good surprises in store for everyone. Um, you know, it's just taking off. Yeah, we're, we're, we're discovering. We're like teenagers. We're discovering ourselves. Um, well, yeah, <laughs> mentally, not physically. Mentally. Chris, I had some, uh, uh, some mental health struggles earlier today um but i got through them yeah yeah i've had so i've had this cat since he was four weeks old man i mean for as for as long as i can remember i've had this cat since me and my wife have been married and uh today we had to say goodbye to him uh and the worst part was i i I didn't even get to say goodbye. Like I had to fake like I didn't even know him. And it was What did you see him with another cat? No, uh my landlord my landlord was going around and uh my cat had gone outside. And technically speaking, we're not supposed to have animals. Because you don't have a pet deposit? Well, he just has no animal rules. Oh, no animals allowed whatsoever. Yeah, but like I said, we've had this cat for four since he was four weeks old. Man, I couldn't give up on him. No, he's like a kid to me, you know. And uh, yeah, the landlord came by while he's outside, and he scratched my landlord up and everything. <sighs> oh, my landlord <laughs> never hears this, but uh. <laughs> He, he scratched my landlord up and he was like, he's like, you need to watch out for that one. He's pretty vicious. I got him. <laughs> yeah, he's the sweetest cat ever. And you're like, get in, Scruffy. <laughs> yeah, like for real. I had to act like I've never seen this cat before. While he, like I'm holding him like a baby while he's purring and everything. And I had to like shove him in a crate and I couldn't say goodbye you're or like, anything. The cat's like, what the fuck, man? I thought we were cool. Yeah. And and then my brother, he came home, and, like, he was real sad about it. Well, the cat's just going to go to the pound, so see if you can get a family member to pick him up. (laughs) Yeah. It sucks, man. It sucks. I've been going through some stuff as well. What about you, Chris? You got anything to talk about mental health-wise? Your life's just perfect. Oh, no life is perfect. Um... If anything, it's just stress. Uh, I do school. God, it's like two days a week. I have to go in person, and then there's schoolwork around the clock, and then I have my kids, and then I have work too. I mean, I've got a busy schedule. Uh, the podcast, then, which is becoming even more, it's becoming a lot now, especially lately. You know, with all our new new things lined up i mean but hey full-time job it's whatever you want you know you gotta you gotta lace up your bootstraps and go to work you know grab life by the horns and if you're listening uh you uh you want to be on the podcast shoot us an email we'll attach it to the description below this one will actually be on TikTok. I'll, I'll have a lot of clips from this one I'll be able to post on TikTok. That'll be cool. Yeah. 
Uh, we're going to have more more guests uh, in the entertainment industry as well um, to talk about mental health. That'll be exciting. Um, big things are coming. We need a, a, a name for our fan base. How about this? If you if you come up with a name, listeners, we'll we'll put in polls. But we got to be active, more active on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and all that stuff. You know, fuck all that, Nate. We just need to release some episodes. Shit. Yeah, let's release. No more waiting. No more waiting two weeks for something. We have a thousand, thousand goal, and we think we might be able to hit it. So. You guys got to help us. We want to hit a thousand before the end of the year. Yep. So on that note, let's uh, let's welcome Mark. Seth and Lark. I was I was getting there. Well, I was sorry to say, bury the lead. I was gonna say we don't use typically use last names in here, but he likes his name to be known. So without further ado, let's welcome Mark Scheffler. Five, four, three, two, one. We're starting recording. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, How's it going? Is... Fine, thank you. And yourselves? Good. good. So, so we have Mark on. Uh, Mark Scheffler. Is that correct? That's a uh, that's as good as I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> we have him on uh, tonight and. Mark, what we usually do, we don't normally do uh, last names. We we've been trying to keep everything anonymous, but you have a you have a name for yourself. You know, you you're in the entertainment industry. You mind telling that us a little true. bit about that? Ah, uh, well, a lot of people know me from uh, the first film I did, which was also Wes Craven's first film, uh, Last House on the Left. Um, there's a variety of reasons uh, that I've, I've learned along uh, the way that film just keeps staying around. You know, every generation has its, uh, has its way with it. And uh, because of that, you know, uh, that coupled with uh, a, a fairly long and uh, reasonably successful career as a writer in television and some stand-up comedy that I do, I've been able to keep myself, you know, kind of relevant and, and kind of around, you know, not, not exactly a household word, but I'm not a household word in my own household. So who gives a shit? You know? So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, did you always, uh, did you always pursue acting? Did you know that that's the field that you wanted to be in or how did that come He's a writer. Well, it, but I started as an actor. So let me, let me tell you, I don't have the, um, I don't have that typical story of, you know, somebody having a dream of going to Hollywood and, you know, selling everything they have and driving cross country or taking a bus. I, I have a much different story. Uh, um, I was an actor in New York and uh, one of the roles that I got was uh, Last House on the Left. I just lucked into it. You know, I had a manager and uh, a manager sent me on an audition and I said, go to this street and uh, this building and you'll see two guys. One's named Wes and the other's name is Sean. And uh, you'll read a scene and come on back here and we'll talk about it. So I go there. I meet Wes and Sean, who, of course, was Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham. But just back then, it, it was a guy named Wes and a guy named Sean. <laughs> so so uh, I read the scene and uh, got back to my manager's office. And by the time that it happened, uh, um, they called and said, yeah, that's what we want. We want him. That's, that's the guy we want. So I, I got in that movie, that movie, thanks to Roger Ebert, a quirk of luck became uh, very famous, uh, and it became something much more than any of us ever thought it would. And that led to me doing a couple of commercials, meeting a commercial director in Los Angeles. You guys know that kind of famous mean Joe green Coca-Cola commercial with the yeah. little kid. And okay. So the guy who directed that, his name was N Lee Lacey. And he was, uh, probably the 
literally the coolest, smoothest guy I had ever met in my entire life. Uh, uh, and I, by that time in my life, young as I was, I had met a bunch of people because I had done some stand up and worked at the Copacabana and all of mountain, Catskill Mountain Resorts and everything. So, uh, but but Lee was this this kind of international character who had offices all over the world and had residences where he had offices and never carried a suitcase. I traveled with him. He never carried a briefcase. That was it. They had clothes, always wore the same clothes. <laughs> But he was a very, very cool guy. So um, after after Last House uh, uh, came out, it, it, there there's something to be said for a young, like a 21 year old guy, uh, uh, fascinated with women, who suddenly finds himself one of the four stars of a top 10 movie in the United States. There's something, <laughs> there's something about that, right? Mm -hmm. So so. Um, the publicity company sends me back to Pittsburgh where I was born and raised and grew up. And uh, they opened the film at a big theater downtown and uh, several women from my high school graduating class who a scant three years earlier wouldn't give me the time of day, suddenly were offering me a whole lot more than the time. And uh, I remember saying to myself, you know, given my particular life goals, I think I've made an excellent career decision. You know, <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. So, so you know, this is this is the high of it, right? So, uh, Last House goes, you know, comes and goes. It's not like a major picture anyway. Even with the publicity that it got, it comes and goes very quickly. And uh, I find myself um, kind of out on the street, as it were like that you know and I, I couldn't uh, talk about the movie and I, it's gone so i'm at a party one night and uh um i hear a guy who kind of looks a little bit like me talking to a beautiful model and he's saying things to her like yes well you know uh, uh i'm developing this concept and we're basically i'm fleshing it out i've got most of the characters drawn right now. And he's using all these words. And this girl is like hypnotized by this. So they end up leaving together. And I, you know, I look at myself and I say, yeah, I could do that. I could tell girls I'm a writer, you know? So <laughs> I went out and I bought a bunch of books. I learned about, you know, the, the mechanical words and everything. And I started doing this and um, uh, uh, it was working. I was, you know, play I was acting but I was like a writer and it was working so then I'm in an audition tied back into Lee Lacey I'm in an audition in his office and I'm doing this little rap to some actress in the room in the waiting room and I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's Lee and he said hey listen um I need to talk to you and I said what and he said I want to read that that thing that you were telling that girl I want to read that when you're finished I have an agent in LA I'd love to send it to him so I said to him, look, Lee, man to man, or, you know, like young man to very cool man, something like that. I said, I'm not really writing anything. I just do that to impress women and to, you know, to get girls. That's it. Uh, and he said, is it working? I said, oh, yeah, all the time. And he said, well, you're an idiot then. He said, you need to be doing that for its real purpose, man. You need to be actually fucking writing something. So I ended up writing that thing that I was making up to that girl i wrote it gave it to him he gave it this is 1976 he gave it to his uh, agent in los angeles and bing bang boom i get a phone call from him saying hey uh uh stan Kamen in at william morris in los angeles just sold that to nbc how would you like to move to los angeles and i said yeah man so i i when i when i said to you originally i don't have like the typical story the day I landed, the day the day I landed at LAX to relocate, I had an agent, I had a credit, national real real credit, I had a, a, an office, a car, an apartment, and uh, and money in the bank, and and you were just, single, and I was single, and I was single, yeah, uh, but being a being a single writer in Los Angeles is is not. That's not really uh, uh, because it, it, in, the, in the hierarchy of the public, it's like a big deal, right? In the hierarchy of show business, it's the lowest rung of the creatives, right? It's like really, <laughs> it, it really is. You can have a, 
you know, office with your name on it and this parking space with your name on it, the studio lot. You're a writer. You're a writer. It's great. You're doing it. You're having fun. Okay. There's a, there's um. If you have a minute, there's a very funny story about uh, why writers become directors. Uh, it's like sure. a like a joke story. So there's a writer. Uh, uh, this is the reason why. So there's a writer who who uh, been kicking around town for years and sort of earned a living, sort of didn't earn a living. Suddenly, just uh, uh, um, sells a screenplay and makes like five million dollars overnight. He's like, bang. So uh, he goes out celebrating and uh, uh, he meets a girl in a bar. And she's beautiful. And he tells her his story that, you know, he's been this and that. And suddenly all of a sudden the success and, you know, if you just want to celebrate for the night, that's okay. And we're good. And she has it. So she invites him back to her place. And uh, uh, which is kind of overlooking the Sunset Strip off of uh, like La Cienega, and it's just beautiful. And she says, "Listen, um, I'll uh, I'm going to go into my room and change. Why don't you go to my little bar over there and make us a drink?" So he goes, and uh, uh, he's making her drink, and he hears the door open, and she's coming out, and he sees her in a negligee, and it's the fantasy of fantasies for. A, a, a regular guy it's just like it's like she's beautiful and she's sweet and she's nice and she's perfect and nothing needs to be done to her to make her the most perfect woman in the world and as he's walking towards her in the hallway to connect with her a director steps out of the bathroom and says that's okay i'll take it from here so <laughs> <laughs> that's why writers become directors <laughs> Oh, oh, that's shoot. good. So, Darren, all this time when uh, all this uh, stuff started happening to you, you know, you you went from your hometown, or uh, and then you moved to LA. Were you feeling overwhelmed at all, or relieved, no. or just? I was. I, I had done. I had been in the Catskill Mountains before. Uh, I went to. I ended up living in the city, and I had been part of somebody else's act and had done you know, maybe 150 club dates in and around that area and then ended up working there uh, doing two weeks at the Copacabana. So I was kind of used, you know, this, th that, that thing where people get freaked out, which has been one of my saving graces. Uh, uh, and I'll, let me, let me go back in time and I'll, I'll build you some foundation for that. Um, I grew up with a single dad. Uh, my dad for the most part uh, was a single uh, a, when he was raising me and he was an aluminum siding salesman. So he's a very kind of out of the box character, always wearing sharp suits and driving big cars and shit and eating in restaurants all the time. And uh, he was just like Mr. Out of the box parent. Right? So around my 10th birthday, he said to me, uh, uh, all right, man, you're going to be 10, you know, big, big one zero. Uh, what do you want for your birthday? So I said, um, how about the three stooges? And and he got them for me. He had a birthday party at a nightclub that they were doing on a Saturday afternoon. They were in Pittsburgh at the Holiday House. And my dad went to them and said, hey, I want to throw a party for my son. Tell me what you want. So they made a deal. I had about 60 people, uh, you know, my friends and their parents, of course, because nobody who could believe this, right? And uh, um, they had the party in the middle of their show. Mo stops the show and says uh, to the audience, well, we're here to celebrate Mark's birthday. Ten-year-old Mark, where are you, Mark? Stand up and say hello to everyone. So I stand up and wave. And then Mo says to me for some reason, come on up on stage with us, Mark. So according to my dad, I like ran up on the stage. And I knew all of their stuff, like all their bits. So I started interacting with them. And Mo was like so surprised that he put his hand on my head and said, I dub you the fourth stooge. And then there was this huge applause from the audience. And I couldn't see shit because I had stage lights in my eyes. And, you know, I'm 10 years old. So, you know, not, not really used. But I felt this, um, this embrace, right? This thing. I felt this thing. And while you're way too young to intellectualize it, uh, that's the day I look back. That's the day when everything changed for me when everything else in life that you could do as an adult was in a shadow 
And uh, uh, being a comedian or being in the entertainment business or being an actor became downstage center. That was it. I just, I aimed myself, you know, uh, uh, in that direction from, from that day forth. That, so that, that was your catalyst. Yeah, that, that was the thing. And, and you know, I, getting back to what you guys are, you know, the talking, talking about men's health, mental health and shit, a lot of people, men in particular, since, you know, there's all this societal pressure on men, you know, to be men, uh, a lot of men who don't have moments like that spend a lot of years of their lives lost. And that loss breeds anger and resentment and that breeds bad behavior. And, you know, it's I, so I've with that in mind always and knowing, you know, it's like uh, I've never taken any of this. I've had a, like a lot of shit, fun shit happen to me and I've and done a lot of shit and I've never taken any any of it for granted you know i've never never i've never felt entitled to it i've always been astounded by it you know <laughs> like i look back and i used to hang with robin williams and david letterman and you know leno and and you know just when i say hang i mean like have dinner and hang out and perform with and what and i look back on that shit and and i say all that really happened and i never felt entitled to that even when I was there, I just felt like even astounded in the moment. Because even when those guys weren't famous, there was always the sense that, you know, you're breathing some rarefied air. And and that's that's been like the personal charm to myself about how my life turned out and how it is turning out. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much, I mean, luck has a big part to do with it, but it's like when you get luck, you have to capitalize on it too. I mean, yeah, you got luck, all these good breaks, but you had to, you had to move forward with them. Well, yeah, but that was part of the fun of it. You know, yeah, like that, that was, um, that was part of the trip of it was, you know, because I was a goof off. I, I, I dropped out of college after my, I went to college at LSU and uh, in Baton Rouge, I went to college with David Duke actually. Uh, uh, what was your major? My major, Southern Girls. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a one-trick pony. That was it, you know. I mean, I left college. I dropped out of college in 1969. I had three life goals, right? That was it. Three life goals. I wanted to sleep with as many women as possible. I wanted to uh, uh, smoke as much weed as possible. And I wanted to make just enough money to afford the weed and the women. So I look back now on what I thought was a trippy life at 19, and I have greatly exceeded my own expectations. You know, <laughs> so, you know, that's it. So LA, um, you're in LA, you do the screenwriting. Uh, was there Mostly TV like writing. Mostly, Mostly TV, TV writing, right? Yeah. So, so you mentioned done. you're good. Chris, you're let good me now. talk. You go. You go. Yeah, sure, please. So, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Robin Williams earlier, and we all know what happened to him, unfortunately. When you were in the entertainment, uh, are in the entertainment industry, did you uh, experience anything like that? Like where you're around other people who weren't yeah. very, you know, well, Robin, well spoken. You know, weren't very what sorry very outspoken about their mental health well you know comedians will exploit their mental health for uh, uh the sake of a joke uh most actors i guess kind of underplay it or use it in 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 their work it's everybody has health mental health issues it, it just it, it's it's who's in charge when it happens that determines mm -hmm uh uh the outcome you know look i'm 72 years old man I, i've had a very fun life but there's still some shit i want to do you know i've got a series right now that my producing partner is out trying to uh, uh attach a lead to that's a, a seven year it's called those seven years it's a seven year chunk of of my life from when i was 14 until i was 21 and it 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 it, it uh it's a story i want to tell so you know uh, I, 
I get up sometimes depressed and, and nervous and scared shitless that at 72, maybe I don't have the years left to do that. Uh, and that's a personal selfish thing, but it still leads to, you know, some sleepless nights every now and then. And then I just, you know, like I said before, it's who's in charge. Well, I'm in charge and, you know, I try to take care of myself and what's going to be is going to be. And if I spend too much thinking about that time, I will not have fun and having fun is like my main objective. Yeah. yeah. And then it, it depends on what vices people go to too. I mean, if, if you abuse a downer too much and you, you know, you kind of go to that space and you don't have the proper way to channel it, that can take you down a dark path. All of that stuff. I mean, except for the stuff that really knocks you out, like heroin and, you know, whatever, all, all the, the, the stuff that takes years to knock you out. Um, <laughs> you know, I heard, I hate to use this guy as an example because he's no example of, of uh, good masculinity, but one night backstage of the Tonight Show, Cosby was, uh, I was on the show and I was, I used to write monologues for the Tonight Show. Whenever there was a certain guest host, I would always write the monologue. So Cosby was Cosby used to like to hold court, right? You know, he's, he's tall. Bill's a tall guy and always very well dressed and always had that cigar. And so he was talking about one night he's at a party and somebody came up to him and said, uh, hey, Bill, how'd you like some cocaine? And Bill said, cocaine, huh? Well, what's that cocaine do for you? And Bill says, and the guy says to Bill, he says, well, it amplifies your personality. And Bill says, but what if you're an asshole? <laughs> you know? <laughs> right? So, so, so that's what all that shit is. It, 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 whoever you are, you are. And all that stuff either makes you a better version or a worse version. And, and it's getting your shit together first. And then people are going to do what they do. But I've never seen any people who were really good people without any extraneous chemical refreshments suddenly partake in a chemical refreshment and turn into like the biggest asshole in the world. Usually you yeah. got to be an asshole first. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the people dealing with demons before that and, you know, they, yeah. they dive into it and then, you know, they, it's just a vicious cycle. Like It's um, horrible. You know, I, I've known people who who are, are exactly that vicious cycle. They'll get really, I worked for somebody early on, really, really mean and vicious and vile, and then get so guilty about it that they, you know, that they go completely the other way trying to make up for it. And then the trigger is always like this, this big and boom, and there we go again. And it's this constant cycle. That's uh, isn't that what they teach women to look out for in an abusive relationship? I, I think so. That those extreme behaviors, you know. So you get a lot so, of that in Hollywood, though. Like a lot of those extreme personalities. You know, I, I I always throw water on questions like that only because, and I don't mean to not not for you personally, but no, you're the, fine. Like ninety percent, ninety even even more of the people that I've met famous and not famous, including lots of famous people. When it boils right down to it, they're just people who have a weird job that pays a lot of money. <laughs> That's it. You know, it, it's really it. It's not, you know, Robin never changed. Most of the people I know who found like mega success never changed. Corbin Bernson, still an old pal of mine, was same guy he was when I knew, you know, we knew each other, nothing's changed. You know, Mark Summers, a lot of people I know who became very famous. So you talked about how you're working on a project now from four, you're, uh, from 14 to 21, with, you know, without giving spoilers or anything. No, no, uh, I, can tell, I can tell you, it, it, when I was 14, I went to, to uh, watch a, a Jerry Lewis in uh, Nutty Professor with my dad. At the end of the film, I was, you know, a huge Jerry Lewis fan, and I was already already somewhat intrigued with entertainment, and you know, in the Three Stooges. And so now I'm 14, and 
I get up and I said to my dad, wow, it must be so much fun to be Jerry Lewis, to be to live in that world. And my dad said, well, maybe you're going to find out one day. I said, oh, come on, you know, in the movies. And my dad, my dad looked at me and it was like one of the most serious moments he ever had. He said, hey, somebody does it every day. Why not you? People, you're funny. You know, who knows? Don't say no to yourself. Why not you? And I had no answer for him. So uh, I, we made this promise. Like I made this little deal with my dad that, yeah, okay, one of these days I'm going to star in a movie that's going to be at the Stanley. And we shook hands. And he said, yeah, and we'll ride together in a limo. Well, as luck would have it, seven years later, Last House on the Left opened up in Pittsburgh at the Stanley, which was managed by my father's cousin. And uh, uh, we rode there in a limo together. So this show that I want to do is called Those Seven Years. And it starts on the day he makes the promise. And it ends on the day these two guys are riding to the and everything else is the, the journey in between on what gets the main character to that point and how it actually happens. How much do you think so, your father's positive influence and behavior in general influenced uh, you throughout your life? Good question. Um, that's, that's a great question. And I have uh, an answer I think is equally uh, uh, to the task, equal to the task. My father is solely responsible for putting into me the theory that if I could if I wanted something badly enough, I could get it. And there wasn't anything I couldn't do as long as I wanted it. He said, that's the big key. A lot of people think they want shit and they get on the road and then they really don't want to take the trip. You got to be sure that that's the road you want to be on. But if you want it, it's all yours, man. And he, and he uh, helped me, uh, you know, did what he could to, uh, to get me on the right, on the right track. He just, he allowed me to do things that, like I told you earlier, he was this out-of-the-box guy, right? So when I was, my hobby is cooking, and it's always been cooking because I grew up eating in oh, fancy restaurants. Cooking. Yeah, so, and my son, my youngest son, Max, is a huge, like a rock star private chef in Los Angeles, right? So, yeah, he's CIA grad. He's just worked in a zillion Michelin star places. So uh, um, when I was uh, uh, 14 and a half on my way to being 15, uh, I told my dad I wanted to go away to Atlantic City and get a job on the boardwalk and just stay there for the summer. Why? Because a guy named Chucky Weiss told me there are a lot of loose girls in the summertime there. So that was my, <laughs> I went, I, I'm telling you there's a theme to this, man. And, you know, I'm, I'm married, happily married. I adore my wife. But, you know, there's a theme, there's a theme to this. Um, so my father uh, said, yeah but you need X amount of dollars. He's very smart. He said, you're going to be, you want to be there for 10 weeks on the, uh, if you don't get a job, you need, you know, you need money. So he arranged for me, my friend David Levine and I to go sell light bulbs and door to door and make enough money. Like, uh, and he said he'd match whatever we made. So he ended up, I made 500, he ended up giving me 500. So I was, I was going away like with good cash in my pocket. I ended up getting a job uh, in the, as a short order cook because I knew how to cook and this guy couldn't believe it. So I, I worked at Denny and size boardwalk grill at St. James in the boardwalk and shit just happened, man. I was, I was just on my own. I learned how to be on my own. My father gave me the opportunity to, he parented me in a way that gave me the opportunity to stand on my own two feet and to make decisions for myself, you know, to not rely on other people to make decisions. To, and to not be afraid of making a bad decision because it's going to happen. How involved was your mother in your um, in your upbringing? Zero. My mother, we had a relationship, but it wasn't very good. Only until like about a year and a half before she passed away did our relationship patch up. She was uh, from a kind of a you know a, a middle class but wealthy family. And uh, she was the youngest and she was, you know, a, a brat and uh, my, you know, shit happens. But I was very aligned with my father uh, and she she didn't like that. So uh, uh, when I was eight years old, I remember that's 1957. When I was eight years old, I came home from school one day. I'm in like the third grade or something. And the housekeeper uh, says, uh, your mother wants to talk to you. And I said, what? My mother looked at me and all she said was, 
uh, pack a bag, you're leaving. I said, oh, where wow. am I going? I said, where am I going? <laughs> and she said, well, you're going to live, live with your father. I said, like, now am I having dinner first? Am I changing my clothes? No, he's on his way over here. And I said, well, what, you know, and I had a younger sister and, you know, and then, and then um, I went to live with my dad and, you know, he, he was staying with his parents. He had, this all happened so fast. He was staying with his parents. He didn't have a place yet. There I was now with my grandparents and it was very, very strange. Like, like a, two months later, my mother and her new husband, who was a, a surgeon, moved to Louisiana to Baton Rouge for him to set up practice. So she was then like gone from my from my physical presence. So we never really had a relationship. We never, except we had like intermittent versions of a relationship. And then um, on uh, a cut to years, years, years later. My mother was like very toxic and she was the kind of person who would control people with money and gifts and, and material things. Uh, because that's the lifestyle she was used to. That's what she was used to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I understand it. Right. So, um, you know, she wanted me, you know, to, to forget my show business stuff and go to law school, which she'd be happy to pay for and uh, uh, do this. And, you know, I, no, no, thanks. So that, that's the reason I bagged out in 1969. I was at LSU. I said, I can't fucking take this anymore. This is, I'm not happy here. This is horseshit. So, um, so that's uh, why it was LSU because your mother was living in Louisiana. That's, that's correct. Yeah. And, um, I, I just, I just said no. So cut to years later, she, um, she just pulled some of her nonsense with, when it came to my, then my first wife and I, getting some bedroom furniture for our new child that was on its way. And um, uh, my mother was also a teller of tales. I have to keep say, giving you guys a foundation because what I'm about <laughs> to tell you sounds, is going to sound strange if I don't. So I remember that when my child was born, right, uh, um, I did the delivery with the doctor in the room. I, I learned how to do it. I wanted my hands to be the first hands on my child. My daughter is born. Uh, my then wife is, we're in a hospital bed and, um, um, I'm with my, her and the baby. And it's just this moment, man. You, either you guys have kids. Oh you know? God. Amazing. It, it's that moment. It's that moment, right? It's that, that fucking, wow. It's all here. Right. It's euphoric. So and, yeah. And you gotta be like a parent to get what that moment is, you know? So, so, uh, I'm in that moment and, uh, the hospital phone rings. And it's my father. And uh, he says, congratulations. And, you know, all, all the right thing. And he said, hey, look, uh, have you talked to your mother? And uh, I said, no, I haven't. Not, not, not lately. He said, well, I just got off the phone with her. Look, I know this is your big day. I've been there. But I got to tell you something. So he tells me something that she said, you know, she, some, she said something to the effect. I remember I was a, I was a writer. I was, you know, at a, a woman, I was married and it just trying to get things together. <laughs> my mother tells my father, you know, uh, you can't send Mark any money for this baby because uh, the baby will never see it. He'll just go and buy drugs with it. And my, oh, father said, my, my father said, what? And she repeated it. So I said, he said, look, don't tell her that I told you. I said, well, dad, you're the only person she probably said that to. And what is she going to do? Divorce you again? I'll handle it. <laughs> you know, I said, once is enough here. So, so he hangs up the phone. I call my mother up on the phone. And uh, I said, look, I just got off the phone with my dad. And right away, she says, don't take things out of context. <laughs> Why don't you just put the smoking gun down on the table, okay? So, so um, I, I said, look, I, I really can't do this anymore. It's I have this. I have a child now, and you know, whatever your reasons that you're the way you are, this is some toxic shit, and I just don't want to do it. So I'm done, and uh, I'm not sticking my chin out anymore. It's stupid. You know, I, I, I've been through therapy. I've been, you know, I, I, I just don't want to do this. It's just, I look forward, I try to game it out and I see nothing productive here for anybody. 
Well, and if she was going to say that to you, why the fuck that day of all days? Well, that's the thing that, you know, people who are good at that pick their moments. They know the moments to pick. Uh, uh, But but here's the thing. Okay, it's it's not all it's not all like that. Um, So I ended up not speaking to my mother for, I don't know, 35 years, something like that. Wow. some, Some no, because I know I know the cycle and it's just just no fucking way. Right. It just wasn't going to work. And I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't trying to, you know, be an asshole about it. I just knew the reality and I'd rather fade the heat on the reality than go the other way. So then what happened was my mother fell. I got a call from my sister who also didn't talk to her for similar but different reasons. Uh, And. She said, uh, I'm going to go to Baton Rouge and see her. I said, okay, you know, my name comes up, wish her well, and hope she recovers. Then my sister called me back a day later when she was there, and she said, she wants to talk to you. I said, okay, give her my number. So she said, uh, well, here's her number. Call her anytime. Okay, I'm not going to stand on ceremony. So I waited a day or two. I told my wife, Patty, my current wife who knew everything about the story. And I, I called her up and the first thing she said to me was, can you come and see me? And I said, yeah, sure. She said, oh, I'll pay for it. I said, no, see, can't do that. You want me to come and see you? You had to say, I'm an adult. I can find my way there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, no need to offer. I'll come and see you on my own dime. So, I did. I went to see her. I went, flew from LA to New Orleans and I went to see her. And when I looked at her, she was, you know, obviously older and kind of injured, sitting in a wheelchair. 35 she years had passed. Wasn't the woman that I had left, right? So, but I kind of prepped myself for that. I'd seen pictures. My sister showed me pictures along the years. So, so um, the mo- I just said, mother. She turned around and she said, well, you're here. And now she turns away from me, <laughs> turns to all these other old people sitting with her. And she said, this is the son I told you, the big shot writer in Hollywood. And, <laughs> you know, so we we ended up having a wonderful few days. And and um, and during that time, she apologized to me for uh, pretty much everything she ever did that was shitty. Uh, and, and she, she said, can you understand how I was 23 years old and you knew grandpa and you know, I was this and I was that. I said, yeah, no worries. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And she said, well, will you come back and see me? I said, sure. And she said, well, I'll pay for it. I said, no, you don't have to do that. I, I do. Okay. I've done. Okay. Uh, uh, so I ended up going in the last uh, year of her life to see her, I made seven trips there. And, uh, you know, if, if you want to use that, that often misused word of closure, uh, I, I would say that, you know, while I missed all that time with her, I didn't miss time with the crazy person, yeah. but I enjoyed the time I had with the sane old woman who understood what she did and cop to it and didn't, didn't try to blame anybody else and didn't didn't throw the shit off on anyone. She took full responsibility for it. And, you know, that was, you know, that was a moment. And we had we had a couple of other very weird, funny moments that that I'm almost like like I've, I've written about, but I've never talked about. Um, one night I was visiting her and in Baton Rouge and uh I was in bed sleeping and I heard, Mark, Mark, wake up, wake up. I need your help. Wake up. Like a pop open, right? You know, okay. Took a breath. I'm all right. I said, what, what is it? Did you fall? And she said, well, sort of. I said, where are you? She said, I'm in the bathroom. I said, oh, okay. And she said, I shit myself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So 
in that moment, it was like the universe saying to me, are you cool? Or are you not cool? Because <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you're cool, you stay. If you're not cool, you leave. You run out the fucking door and never come back. But if you <laughs> you go in there and you do you do it and you and you get it done. Oh, yeah. So I had to go in there and you know clean her up. And no child should ever have to do that. And some I know people do do that. And my my just massive respect for like I was yeah. completely freaking out, man. Yeah, you know, I'm a nurse I'm a, by profession. I see it all the time. Dude, Amazing people. I, yeah, I am an immature, ba barely responsible, uh, uh, eighteen-year-old in a seventy-two-year-old man's body, and and uh, but I'm a decent guy. That's why I I, I get around, you know. Uh, I, I but I'm telling you, I did that. I told my wife about it. And she said, "No fucking way! You actually did that." And I said, yeah, I, uh, you know, and afterward, my mother said to me, she said, she said, you know, you're the only one of my four children who would have done it. And I, I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, your sister Janice, she would have gotten somebody to do it. She would have acted almost as quickly as you did. She would have called, you know, uh, one of the housekeepers and said, you know, my mother did go and go and do it. And then I would have had to stay like soaking in my shit for till, till that person got here. And then she mentioned one brother. She said he'd never even show up for me. And then she mentioned the other brother and she says, he's an idiot. He'd see the, what it was and like vomit. She said, so literally <laughs> you're the only one. And I said, yeah, I don't know, but I'm here. I did it. So, you know, it, it and then after she passed away, I found myself thinking about that moment and saying, you know, given that my relationship with her was never normal ever, right? I'm going to just roll with the last year and change being what it should have been all along. And, um, you know, grateful, grateful to the universe that I had that moment. Yeah, because, you know, if she didn't have that fall and give you that reason to come visit her, you know, no, you may yeah. have gotten that moment with her. No. And there were there were times in that year where she was OK, where, you know, she's moving around and you know, I'd come and visit and we'd go out to dinner and, uh, you know, she'd make fun of my diet. You know, she, oh, yeah. I like I don't I'm a vegan, you know, pretty much a vegan. I don't eat animal products. And and uh, I'd order something like that in a restaurant, and she turns to the waiter and says, "He's trying to live an extra ten minutes, you know, just mm -hmm. shit like that, just smart ass shit like that." But she, you know, it all worked out. How was your I, relationship I, with your siblings? Um, I have a decent relation. My family's divided up into two parts: my father remarried and my mother remarried, and both had children, so. But your father um, much later. Much later, yeah. Yeah. Um, one brother from my mother's is kind of, you know, like a sketchy person. So I stay away from him. The other one I speak with periodically is a decent guy. And my sister is my sister. Uh, and then on the other side of the family, I have uh, another sister, younger sister, and then a brother who's in the middle age kind of group. I, I try to get along with everybody, you know. I did don't put your, up with nonsense. What did your father ever express? How happy he was that your mother made that decision to send you to him. Yeah, because that's the first thing. I, as a single father myself, the second I'm like, I was just putting myself in your dad's shoes. I'm like, I bet you he was the happiest guy on earth when he got that phone call. He he was because um, he knew I wasn't happy. We had a, a very positive c connection, you know, like I have with my sons, you know, I put the time in. Um, and, uh, you know, we went to a lot of baseball games, we ate in a lot of great restaurants, you know, we, we, we had a great life, you know, and then he got married and he had 
that and my life change, which is part of the show I'm doing, you know, how main characters life changes because of that, you know? So, uh, but, but he gave me the gift of independence, you know, he gave me the gift of, uh, of me believing myself is my first option, right? You know, it's like the thing I go to first. Um, like I had no idea how to write anything when I got here as a writer, having sold the script, I had no idea. I had to learn on the job, but my father gave me the confidence. Like I never ever doubted myself. I, in fact, I always went in and I was very confident, you know, so. And when you had to make decisions, like when you were thinking on things, was he often someone you would call and talk to about it? Not about creative things, personal things. Yeah, we talked about, but not, not about creative things. He used to, he used to come out and visit me and just, fucking hang out and at the comedy store and the improv. And like, he knew Robin Williams. Uh, uh, I'll tell you a story. Uh, uh, he, he knew Robin before Robin did Mork and then after. So he, he knew him in, in the transition. So my dad had come out to visit. We're standing on Melrose Avenue outside of the improv. And uh, I look uh, um, east and I see on the next block, I see somebody looks like Robin coming this way. Sure enough, it's Robin, and he's got something rolled up under his arm. So he sees my dad and he's, oh, Mr. Scheffler, what bring, what news from the East do you bring? You know, some character, he just went right into his little Shakespeare thing. And uh, made my dad laugh, and my dad says, what do you got under your arm? And it was People Magazine, uh, first time Robin was ever on. So. My father said, uh, wow, brand new, huh? I said, yes, Robin said, I just picked it up just now. And he, my dad said, I have to go get one. And Robin said to him, no, take mine. And he pulled out a marker and he signed it to my dad and gave it to him. My brother, Michael, still has the magazine. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. He still so has I, it. I do have one more thing I want to ask you about. You were, sure. <clears throat> so you like the bachelor lifestyle. What I, age I like did the, you settle down? Thirty-five. Thirty-five. And got, married, got married. Got married for the first time at thirty-five. And how long did that marriage last? Ten years. How was the and divorce? Was it the job? I, pardon me. Was it the no, job? Uh, no, it was that my first wife uh, realized that she was a lesbian. Ah, that'll do it. And yeah, and we're still great friends. We still like you know, uh, have a, a wonderful friendship relationship. Um, she's friends with my wife. They, they live in Texas also, uh, with her wife and, um, everybody's friends. We just, I told you, I chill out, man. I don't, I don't let shit like that bother me. It's not, it's not worth it. The pot helps so, too though. It does, but I was, ch I'm chill anyway. I start chill. So <laughs> I only get more chill. So yeah, I, I try to, you know, luckily it was, it was a situation like that because it enabled us to co-parent our children, uh, uh, rather effortlessly. You know, we yeah. didn't, we didn't have a whole lot of shit. We, we still, we always liked each other, right? All cared about each other, but sometimes there's a, you know, an ulterior truth and you got to deal with that. You just, you know, it's, it's. Sometimes you just got to know when to just uh, say, okay, you know, I get it. Wish you luck. Thank you. Let's just stay friends because we have mutual interests like these children. And that's exactly what we did. And you have the daughter. You have a daughter, I, right? I do. I do. She's married and uh, uh, lives in Vegas because she always wanted to live in Vegas when she was a little kid. <laughs> and she's apparently happy there. And, um, my youngest, we have three. My youngest son is a chef in LA, and he does uh, private private events. And he brings he brings fine dining into people's homes. Is what he does. Nice. He's not a caterer. Not a not a caterer. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your uh, professional background, like uh, sure for your for your writing and everything. Do you have like a favorite piece that you've ever done, and that you can like look back on? <sighs> I think the thing that I, I, I love the most is the pilot script for this series that 
I'm trying to get done. I think it's my best work. That's um, awesome. A lot of know. wisdom under your belt. Are you going to be acting in it? I don't know. I, I, you know, maybe, maybe not. It's not anything I'm thinking about. I'm thinking more as a producer and a writer right now and just trying to you, you do, don't think do you what could, I uh, You don't think you could pull off your 14-year-old self right now? N no. <laughs> I, 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 could, I could, like, emote that for sure, right? But, well, I was thinking as your dad. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this movie called Honeybee uh, with Shia LaBeouf. He plays his dad. Oh um, yeah, I I, see, I remember seeing ads for that. Yeah, it was really great, greatly uh, directed, and uh, that's what I was thinking of. You know, you could you could play your dad. Yeah, except that nobody will nobody cares about me. I'm trying to get a seriously well-known actor to play the part of the dad. We have a we have a casting list of about eight people and uh, any one of them would be a thrill to work with and do it. So we're just gonna keep, you know, kind of, we, uh, we just started that process, process yesterday. So, oh. um, you know. Uh, That's exciting. We'll see. It is, yeah, it is. I, I, you know, I'm experienced enough to know that I should just sit back and wait for something or nothing to happen because uh, nothing I can do sitting in my house here has any effect on it. I've done everything I can. This your first time uh, producing something like this? No, 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 no. First time, first time I would be producing something so personal to me, but I've produced stuff before. But this is, this is something that uh, I have the, I have every season kind of laid out already in my head and on notes and, while I don't have every episode crafted, I know what the stories are and I know what the narrative progression is. So it's not would, like, uh, no, please go ahead. How would someone, uh, get involved like this? Like, for, like for me, like I, I have ideas like crazy. You can ask Chris, I'm constantly pitching ideas. How would something, how would someone get involved in some something like this? Just connections, well, networking. It's not just that. You got to think ahead now. Um, you know, you have to anticipate what you're going to need. Uh, it, but if you wait till you need it, it might be too late. So you always have to anticipate what you might need. So what you would need to answer your question in the most favorable light is a writing sample. Is something that shows you know, what you can do. So in television, the way it usually works is you pick a show that you really like. And if you really like it, it sort of means you know the characters. And when I say know the characters, what I mean is you can hear their voices in your head because that's how you write characters. You don't write you don't take a step and say, I think I'll have them say this. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. them in your head and they say that. <laughs> you gotta, so, so you pick a show that you really like. Then you search online and get a copy of a script from that show. And you read it and read it and read it and read it and read it until you become intimately familiar with that show's unique format. Because while scripts are always written pretty much in the same format, every show I've ever worked on has a tweak on that and it becomes their signature, right? They do this, whereas another company wouldn't do that, you know, just whatever it is. You just have to find that and, and figure it out what that is. And then you gotta write a script for that show that looks exactly like that script that you're reading. No better, no worse, exactly, right in the middle. Have you ever heard that thing where there's really only like two, there's only like seven stories? Yeah, I don't know about that. I, you know, I, that seems limiting. I think, I think there are basic emotions that are always available in, in different forms in different stories. But I think, you know, stories are stories. They're all, yeah. they're all unique unless they're stupid. And then, you know. Do you I have a method? Like, uh, I've seen the circle method. Have you heard of that one? No, sir, I haven't. Like, where is you, that? It, you start in a circle, and the top of it is where uh, your character is just living normal life or whatever. It's kind of like, you know, the beginning, the climax, well, and the ending. Like a well, narrative yeah, but, structure? But there's but eight know, but, different points. 
seven. Well, actually, actually, the way I learned it, because I used to, I taught screenwriting at uh, Loyola Marymount University School of Film and Television for a few years. So what you're talking about is, I, I don't know anything about the circle, but there, there's a screenplay structure. Uh-huh. And, and uh, there are two basic forms of screenplay structure. There's a seven point structure and there's an 11 point structure. Seven point structure is the structure that's used for probably 90% of every film that's made. And it has to do with the normal life of the character, right? All uh-huh. right, uh, the inciting incident, the end of the first act, the midpoint, the end of the second act, and then uh, the end of the uh, of the third act. Okay, then then uh, and then the uh, 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 denouement, which is the 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 getting the new normal, right? So so the four points that exist in the other structure are mythic. It's mythic. It's called mythic structure, and it it goes to uh, uh, early Joseph Campbell writings when. You have that that whole concept of you know hero and mentor and mentor and the the young guy who's got to learn shit like Star Wars is a great example. So the ones that come the points that aren't that aren't in the seven point structure that come ahead of that are uh, call to action, right? Refusal of the call, meeting the mentor, accepting the mentor's aid uh, assistance and teaching. So those are four points that have it. And then it goes right to the inciting incident that actually starts the movie off. Yeah, I think it's right. a 7.1. I don't know. I know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 7.1 that I was thinking of. Yeah, it could be 8 points. Somebody could have, you know, split two points in half or come up with something else. But that's basic screenplay structure. So yeah. what I do is this. What, what I try to do is once... You know what a log line is? No, sir. Okay, log line is a like a one or two sentence description of a movie or a TV series. But in that one or two sentence uh, description, you kind of get the whole picture. All right. So think of it as like an atom, right? Because in those two sentences are, are like you know 120 minutes of film or 90 minutes of film, right? In those two sentences. And if you, so what I try to do is I think of a story that, that kind of tickles me. And then I see if I can log line it. If I can log line it and I'm happy with the log line, then I'll go to that seven point structure and see if I can identify, if I can think of this story through enough. And I try to identify each one of those seven points for this story. What would that be? What would that be like? And if I could do that, I'm a big believer in outlining shit, you know, you know, oh, it's yeah. like, do you ever, do you ever hear that thing called writer's block? Oh yeah, yep. of course. Yeah. I, I've never, it's never happened to me. Very right? lucky. <laughs> no, no, not lucky. No, no, no. Am lucky, but not because, but not in this case, because I learned uh, uh, a long time ago, don't try to write before you think too many people think that they can think and write at the same time. That's bullshit, okay? There's too much going into how it looks on the page and you know words. You gotta do your thinking before you get to the computer. So what I taught myself to do was to think things through so thoroughly and make notes in a notepad that by the time I got to typing, uh, I, I was not gonna ever stare at a blank screen, I was gonna Whatever I put down, I'll fix, but you can't fix something and rewrite something if you don't write it first. The narrative so, is already written out for you. Yeah. So I I I would I still do this. I still walk around. Like my wife, my wife knows when I'm writing, like when we'll be somewhere and she talks to me. And I either answer as somebody else or I don't answer at all. Or I'm often, you know, and she knows that, you know, I'm thinking about something that I'm writing, that I'm, you know. So I I have all these notebooks, these notebooks around here, these spiral notebooks, and I just make notes on something until I don't want to make notes on it anymore. And then I see if I can find those points. And then if I, you know, if, or if in a TV show, like in a pilot, I would need different parameters, but I need to identify those places and know that I have them. And it, it, then I, I proceed, you know, incrementally. But once I get past, 
where I have that and I have good characters. And I said, fuck it. I take a shot. I'll write it. See what happens. Well, that sounds good. Uh, well, Mr. Mark, I think we got off the subject about mental health. No, you're good. It's okay. So, but I appreciate all the knowledge. I've been trying to write a, uh, been trying to write film for almost five years now, and I think I got about three sentences just because, like I said, you know, trying to write before you, you're not thinking before you're writing. Well, I have ADHD. Super, I pitch about three new ideas to Chris a day, so it's just hard to keep up uh, no. with the uh, no, everything no, it's not that goes on. You, you haven't decided to do it yet. Pick one idea that you like and just think about, use all that energy that you have to On expand that. That's, that's what it. the podcast, that's what Build this podcast is. You know, but that's what, that's what would be my advice to you. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, on that note, Mr. Mark, I, I appreciate you being on this podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. I wish you guys the best luck. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Nate, what do we say? Oh, ah! we didn't say it. We didn't say it. You didn't say it because you rushed him off. We forgot. We got off the subject. Well, we're still recording. Well, guys, he fucked it up. <laughs> oh, first one. Oh, man. Well, Chris, I can still say it to you. I love you, man. I love you, but I'm fucking pissed at you. <laughs> it's the first one. Oh, it's bound to happen. It's bound to happen. I can't believe you. All right. Uh, I'm going to record so I can go cuss myself out. Or stop recording. If you or someone you know are having thoughts or feelings of suicide, please call the suicide hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or 911 in your local area. And remember, I love you, man. This podcast is recorded and produced by Fancy Name Productions. Your host is Nathan and Chris. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.